Sound like the usual mindless, boring, getting to know you chit chat. Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I'm your host, Fred Davis. Episode 128 of the program happening right now. And you guessed it, it's a Follower Friday kind of vibe today. And a fantastic Follower Friday, if I do say so myself. So welcome to the program. Another gentleman in the podcast game, another gentleman in the old school journalism game, and another gentleman in the old school data game. Yes, that's right. He's a man of many talents, and you are going to hear that first and foremost today. Mr. Patrick. Rao, Director of Strategy and Research for Natural Gas Intelligence, joins the program talking all things natural gas, the markets, and a little bit about the relationship between natural gas and renewables. It is a wonderful, informative listen, and of course, nobody does a better job of explaining than one Mr. Patrick Rao. But before we get to Mr. Rao, let's hear from our CEO and founder, Mr. Mike Niemer, telling you what it is we do here at eRenewable and giving you a little update on what you can expect from the podcast this summer. At eRenewable, we know going green is important to your business and your ESG rating. Besides offering PPAs and VPPAs, through our network of clean energy professionals, we can also offer renewable natural gas or let us help you lower your carbon footprint with responsibly sourced gas from a leading global energy provider. Maybe you need green energy credits, whether it's unbundled RECs or RSG certificates. Your path to net zero and decarbonization is one step closer with the renewable. For more assistance, please call us at 1-866-E-RENEW-1. Hi, Green Insider listeners. Just wanted to let you know about our summer schedule. We're going to be taking June off with regards to the podcast. We're going to be attending some conferences, and we also have a couple vacations planned in there. Hopefully, you have some summer vacations planned, too. But in the meantime, when we come back in July, before that, I know you'll be aching to listen to more Green Insider. So please go to our library on our renewable page, eRenewable.com. Find one of our topics, whether it's hydrogen, whether it's microgrids, whether it's responsibly sourced gas, whether it's renewable natural gas. We've got a lot. We've got over 100 episodes for you to choose from. Please listen to them while we're out in June, and we will see you back here in July with more great content. Thank you all for listening. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Mike Niemer. You can always check out all the episodes over there at eRenewable.com. Meanwhile, too, be sure to follow us over there on the Green Insider and eRenewable page on LinkedIn so you, too, can be a Follower Friday member. All right, let's get right down to it. Mr. Patrick Rao, Director of Strategy and Research from Natural Gas Intelligence. He also does their podcast, the Hub and Flow podcast. And, of course, when you hear him talk, you can certainly understand why my man's got a silky smooth delivery uh, and also just gives out just straight A-plus information, so hopefully you will enjoy that today. He's going to talk a little bit about, obviously, the volatility in the markets, what's going on right now, how the U.S. plans on filling in that role, the relationship with renewables, natural gas, and gives a little primer on RNG as well as RSG. So without further ado, please welcome to the program, Mr. Patrick Rao. Thanks, Fred, and thanks, Mike, for having me. Uh, Patrick Rao, Director of Strategy and Research for Natural Gas Intelligence. Uh, NGI, we've been in business for 40-some-odd years now, headquartered in the Northern Virginia area, but we've got offices all throughout North America. We even have a gentleman who covers the Mexico for us based out in Santiago, Chile. Uh, we are a price reporting agency, first and foremost, excuse me. We have spot market prices daily and bid week prices for more than 170 locations in the United States and Canada, and we now have 40-some-odd locations in Mexico. 
and we augment our price uh, PRA duties with uh, traditional journalism. In our in our stories, we'd like to take it. We take it a few steps farther. I mean, we're certainly not just recouping uh, price releases, or whatever. We have uh, a lot of low turnover at our company, so we know a lot of folks. So it's a pretty big, deep inventory of folks that we contact to get value add to our stories, and we think that certainly shows worth in our product. Real quick, and we'll get to the. I want I want to get to uh, natural gas and, and renewables and that. Uh, relationship here in just a second, but being the uh, former newspaper guy that I am, um, obviously being a subscription-based service certainly doesn't hurt, but let's call it what it is. I mean, you've been in this business a long time. You've been around newspapers a long time. Uh, They have taken a beating over the last 20, 25 years. I mean, in fact, I don't know if my journalism degree is even, you know, matters from 07. Why has Natural Gas Intelligence been able to kind of stem that tide, and why are you guys still standing strong 41 years later? The great question and the main answer is our data. Since we're a price reporting agency, the spot market prices that we produce are written into physical market contracts. They're used as the underlying mechanism for derivatives trades. Uh, Some pipelines use them for cash out mechanisms. State public utility commissions look at our data to assess the prudency of purchases from regulated utilities. There are a number of different reasons or folks to use our indexes. And so there's a lot of stickiness to that. We certainly complement our indexes with our traditional journalism and news services. I mean, it's still a business that we like. And, you know, having those stories helps to add some meat and bones and flesh to the prices that we determine. Um, So there's a good circularity there. But um, that's largely the main reason is because we're really more of a data company than we are, say, a pure journalism entity. Who came up with the title Hub and Flow, by the way? Yeah, that's a good question. It was some internal. I mean, that might have been uh, Phaedra friend Troy who did that. And <laughs> okay. Phaedra, I'm giving you credit for that one. So if it weren't you, I apologize. But uh, as, as somebody she, who she, could appreciate oh, a good title, uh, that, that's a great uh, that's a great name for you guys' podcast. So I, I, I certainly no, we appreciate, appreciate that. <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, look, it's as volatile as it's ever been, natural gas wise. Without going into like a you know 30, 45 minute long diatribe, give us a little uh, elevator pitch or elevator story on uh, what is Pat Rouse kind of you know thirty thousand foot view on what the natural gas market is right now. Yeah, right now, as you said, it's very volatile. I mean, we at NGI, we don't do forecasts per se, but I do think that, you know, short term, there's still quite a few bullish things that are in place for uh, for gas prices. Um, I think the, the number one indicator in the short term, I believe, for gas prices is just what is gas and storage. I mean, the, the less there's gas and storage, the more that tends to prop prices in the short term. Uh, we are looking at a 300 some odd BCF difference to storage on a versus the five year average. And that's huge. And that's huge. And here we are coming into the summer. What kind of a summer are we going to have? I mean, I know you guys deal with electricity, so you look at this too. But there's talk that in Texas, one of the largest economies of the world, we're going to have record-breaking power demand this summer. We're already seeing really hot temperatures in California, which is also one of the largest economies in the world, much less the United States. So it's shaping up to be a pretty hot summer. Then you got the supply side production. Roughly two-thirds of all U.S. natural gas production is done by publicly traded producers, and they have been maintaining their stance on capital discipline. They're simply just not growing production all that much right now. The investment community has really told them, we don't want production anymore. We're not paying you for that. We're paying you for returns on invested capital. That's what we want to see. And the producers have been holding very tight to that. 
Now, there's talk that maybe some of these producers, the privates are still producing like crazy. There's no question about that. I mean, production is up like 4.5% year over year so far this year. Problem is, is demand's more up by more like 6.5%. So that right there tells you, you know, short term, you got some price things. Longer term, structurally, it's going to be harder for producers to increase their production for a while just because there's been such a lack of investment in producing capacity the last few years. There's also a lack of equipment right now. It's really hard to get your hands on a top-notch drilling rig or pressure pumping spreads right now. It is really difficult to do that now. And the oil field service companies will refurbish a few old rigs, but they're not building new ones right now. So it's going to be several quarters until maybe just the physical equipment catches up to the ability for producers to meaningful, meaningfully excuse me, ramp up output. The last thing I'll say, there's been a big structural change also in the perception of U.S. gas and that all happened on February the 24th when Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, it is now, it's, it's creating a big call potentially for US LNG because the world is starting to, or is gonna to try to wean themselves off of Russian gas. The US for a number of reasons is in an excellent position to take up some of that slack. So we're gonna to try to do that. The question is, is will our infrastructure be able to keep pace And there? That's a whole nother podcast topic because of regulation and so forth. Um, but the thinking here is that traders think this is now structural. So, so far this year, we're seeing like $8 or so uh, MMBTU gas at the Henry Hub, which is a 13-year high. Typically, when we have events like this, you see a reaction in the short term, the front part of the curve, but the back part doesn't do anything. The back part of the curve through 2027 is up 35% over the last six months. That is very meaningful. That is very meaningful. So that's telling you that the market thinks this is much more structural in nature, and the United States is going to have a big, big role in feeding the rest of the world gas for quite some time. Pat, let me ask you, 13 years ago, when gas went over $13 and spiked mm -hmm. up, it was more, if I remember right, more gas following the crude oil market running all the way to $140 plus. That's not necessarily the case this time. It's not really following what the oil is doing at all because you have all these fundamental things going on. What do you, other than what you just said, is there anything else that's going to differentiate between this year's run up and 13 years ago's run up? Because the second crude oil, you know, started falling, gas came with it. What do you see there between those two relationships now? That's a great point, Mike. Uh, you're right, 13 years ago. And I might also add that 13 years ago, there was something like 50 or 60 LNG import facilities planned for the United States. It was just a different mindset back then for the natural gas industry. There are still some concerns that we're going to have shortages. And that's because the shale revolution had, was still in the early stages back then. Hadn't really taken off. Well, we're there now. I mean, we're absolutely there. So that's the reason why you've seen prices relatively lower. You know, I know that for there's a, about a, you know, a six times uh, multiple or so between oil and gas prices. That really got disconnected for a few years ago because gas prices were just so cheap because of the free-flowing nature of, uh, of natural gas producers. But what you're seeing in the rally now for gas, it's not related to crude oil. It is by itself. It's its own entity. Um, and you know, one large part for that is just that there's been coal replacements for power throughout the world and natural gas is becoming much more of a baseline fuel, not just in the United States, but also globally. Um, and then again, just as we discussed again, just the whole the Russia situation, 
you know, Europe has been, as you guys are well aware, you guys, uh, you know, Europe's been quite a bit farther ahead in uh, in uh, getting to net zero. And the cool thing about natural gas is that, yeah, it's still a fossil fuel, and therefore it does have some global warming effects. But one of the biggest deltas any country can really do to change emissions is to switch from coal to gas. It's one of the things that can be do much more quickly. And so, uh, you know, there's been some extra demand for natural gas from that. So this is clearly, I think, versus 13 years ago, the gas markets absolutely have decoupled quite a bit from the overall crude market. You mentioned earlier that, you know, production's up 4.5% year over year. But, of course, the big difference is obviously demand is up 6.5%. Mm-hmm. However, renewables, we all know you talked about investment not being in, in uh, you know, on the produ- production side of, of, of natural gas. We all know trillions of dollars are going into the, you know, creation and more production of, of renewable energy. What is the relationship from the natural gas side? Because obviously here on the, the Green Insider, we've talked to the majority of, of folks on the renewable side of things. But why does it always have to be an either-or proposition when it comes to renewables and natural gas? And I think we're seeing now that, you know, for us to get to these net zero goals and for us to have, you know, to satiate the demand, it's going to have to be an and proposition, is it not? I agree with you. It's going to have to be an and proposition. I mean... Renewables are very important and they're going to be, they're going to grow and they should grow simply because we know what their carbon footprint is. And quite frankly, renewables have a better carbon footprint overall than natural gas. But as, and I could be asking you guys these questions and you can be telling me, is just that renewables, they have intermittency problems. You know, the, it's the old cliche, the sun doesn't always shine, you know, the wind doesn't always blow and battery technologies maybe is not quite where it needs to be. So natural gas is the key chief backup peaking fuel for those facilities. So they need it. Gas needs to be around just for that. But gas is also it's still inexpensive. It's still quite scalable, assuming that we have the infrastructure in place to do it. And that's really for the question of should it be an or an and I agree it should be an and I think the economics are compelling for there to be an and. The question in the United States, the question really around the world is, will the infrastructure be in place to allow that to happen? Um, look, we've gotten in the last three months, and I don't mean to go on a political diatribe here, but look at inflation in the U.S. It was up 7% last year. I think the first quarter was more like 8.5%. Um, that's not helping. We have a potential recession looming. We've got now the question of international uh, Dependence on 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 you know on, on Russia, for example, but Europe is trying to wean off of that. This is an opportunity for the United States to pick up the slack here. Producing more natural gas would help with inflation. Producing more natural gas and shipping it overseas would help with the political stability. But you got to have the pipeline infrastructure to do that. You got to have better, clear permitting in places to build LNG export facilities and these pipelines and. That's going to be the multi-billion, maybe trillion-dollar question: Is is this, will U.S. regulators get that message and help to move that along? When it comes to clean technology, we know that carbon capture is going to is going to loom large in may in, in kind of reestablishing. And I don't want to use the word reestablish as far as natural gas is concerned, but we know it's going to be a huge boon, and it's now being adopted slowly because we're hearing a lot of venture capitalists, and we've had them on the show that said, "Look, there's more than one way to green the grid." Right. And obviously, carbon capture is a huge part of that. How, in your mind, how does carbon capture help uh, with this discussion as far as whether it's the infrastructure? 
infrastructure, whether it's the and conversation of making natural gas maybe not demonized so much as it has been over the last couple of years? Certainly, it's going to help demand, and I can tell you that you know if the forty-five Q credit is eighty-five dollars instead of fifty or forty-five, whatever it is now, that'll make a big incremental difference. I've not run the numbers on that. This is I'm hearing this from multiple companies within the natural gas value chain. We listen to something like 80, 90 different publicly traded company earnings conference calls every quarter, and this is a recurring theme. Get that credit up. It could do wonders for carbon capture in general, which in turn would be great for natural gas. And so, um, yeah, we'd love to see it. We're hoping that it happens. There are certain projects that are underway that are economic, but, uh, you know, I and all that would help gas, but I just think getting that 45Q credit is a big, big thing. And so once again, it gets back to kind of regulation, doesn't it? Look, man, it's you, you've been saying it. We've had folks on this show say it time and time again. I mean, you know, the, 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 the need is there and it's kind of like everybody knows what needs to be done. And then of course, whether it's, you know, whether it's the 45 Q, whether it's this, you know, solar uh, investigation, it, it, it's almost as though, you know, look, the energy, I'll say this much, and, and again, I'm no expert on, on the energy business as much as, as you and Mike are, but let's call it what it is. The energy business is pretty dadgum good at when it comes to you need innovation, when you need a technology, and when you need to get up and get things done. I don't know that there's a more self-sufficient, innovative industry than the energy folks. And, you know, like I said, they're kind of sitting there on the sideline with their hands tied, you know, kind of ready to go. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I agree with everything you just said, absolutely. And certainly energy companies are doing what they can to try to get the message out, particularly in Washington in the in the state uh, capitals and with consumer groups, et cetera. But, you know, another thing that, quite frankly, could help this along, and I hate to say it, it's just experiencing a little pain. So, you know, let me go back to 2008. You might remember the bank bailout. And there was a bill on hand to help to bail out the the financial institutions, it was something like an $800 billion federal package, and it failed because so many politicians were trying to tie their things to it. Well, guess what happened? The stock markets lost $1.3 trillion in market cap that day. And then the legislators came back and said, oh, wow, wait a minute. I didn't know that was going to happen. So they sort of, let's maybe rethink this. And miraculously, it passed. So, you know, here we are just back to the natural gas side of things is we're looking at really high inflation right now. You know, we've got the whole security abroad, some of our allies, and maybe not wanting the Russian gas. There are things that we can do. So will this pain maybe help to change the thinking of some legislatures? I hope so. You know, I've got a question. As uh, the big difference now, I also believe, between now and 2008 was we have a lot more private equity money in the energy mm -hmm. space. And I believe that's probably changed a little bit of the dynamics that we've all, that have been around for a while, have seen. What, what's your view on the difference private equity has made inside energy? Private equity, particularly, at least in the EEP standpoint, it was there had been an awful lot of private equity-backed uh, production companies. There were a number of uh, private equity-backed uh, pressure pumping and oil field service companies, you know, and, you know, they were really, really trying to grow, grow, grow as quickly as possible because, of course, with private equity, what's the whole goal there is to ultimately cash out in your investment. You need to sell build and sell. Build and sell. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. So typically about a five to seven year time frame. Well, there's still some private equity money there, no question. But, you know, we sort of had a big wave of growth and that slowed. 
you know, the U.S. rig count, the extent that it's up this year, it's all really been driven by privates primarily. So, there, and the privates, there's some private equity money, you know, in those privates there as well. So, I mean, I think we're seeing a bit of a renaissance right now from private equity and, you know, that's helping activity. Um, it's just only so much that they can do because they really need the publicly traded counterparts to be playing ball with them in terms of expanding production capacity and so forth. And, you know, they have just been much more in a capital conservation mode. So, I mean, long-winded answer to your very short question, but, you know, private equity, it's certainly playing a role. I don't think it's playing as role, but as big of a role as it had been at the outset of this industry. It certainly has been playing as big of a role as a few years ago when they started to monetize some things. But there has been, I think, a bit of an uptick in it more recently. And, you know, the, the more money we can get investing in this, certainly the better to get us towards uh, expanding our business here. Yeah. One last thing I have for you, Pat, is I know you do, you go around and do a lot of different conferences and, and talk at quite a few of those conferences. With regards to the topics in the conferences, what do you see the biggest difference now in 2022 versus pre-pandemic in 2019? Is there a difference on the topics? I'll throw one acronym out and let's see, TTF. Stands for title transfer facility. It's the main pricing mechanism in Europe. Three years ago, I was at a gas show. It was in the United States. It was all about the U.S. The basically the global markets, and more than half the people there didn't know what TTF was. Now everybody knows. TTF is trading at close to thirty dollars an MMBTU. The LNG markets are hot. LNG is just taking. Every conference I go to, LNG is the hot thing. It was the hottest thing talked about during first quarter conference calls this time around. You've got producers who are now looking to try to get their hands on selling some of this gas at $30. Really to do that, it's going to take an expansion of second wave export facilities. But you've got producers for the first time actually talking about trying to sell their gas overseas. It's just such a big dramatic difference from 15 years ago. Again, when we're talking about importing a whole lot of gas. So I would say LNG by far has been the hottest topic in the gas sector here in the last few weeks. And this really got accelerated again from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and it's now there's a call on US natural gas to try to help fill it. There, there are four large main exporters of gas. There's globally, there's Russia, there's Qatar, there's Australia, there's the US. Folks are trying to wean off Russia. Australia largely goes to Asia. Qatar can go around the world. You know, they're expanding, but they're not quite there yet. And then there's the United States. And the thing that the United States has advantage for it is we don't tend to have destination clauses in our LNG contracts. So those cargoes can go basically wherever the market will bear. So that's been another call on demand. It's also another reason why gas prices have increased here recently. So LNG by far and away is the hottest topic in our industry right now. That being said, where does uh, renewable natural gas and responsibly sourced gas kind of where? I'm, I'm guessing because it's a little bit more expensive anyway. How is it faring right now? Well, I'll start with your second point first. That RSG, for one thing, if you want to export gas overseas, you better be RSG compliant. You better be certified. You better be low emissions. Mm -hmm. and that's really just part of doing business. And ultimately, we think that RSG is just going to be part of doing business, as it were, anyway, whether it be domestic, anything like that, because ESG just continues to be such a growing, growing thing in the minds of investors. So, I mean, we guess that 
maybe a third to 40% of all U.S. production right now either has been certified or is in the process of being certified. But that's going to keep on growing. You know, that's going to become the majority. And that's going to happen within the next really two, three years, we think. On RNG, you know, the more RNG we get, the better, I think, certainly because you know, it's just depending on how you source it, it could be have a negative footprint, right? Uh, but it is expensive. Um, there's only probably so much of it that the country can ever produce. I know that California has some pretty extensive and aggressive goals for RNG. But, uh, you know, I, I could just throw some statistics from the RNG coalition. You know, I, I can't quote them off the top of my head, but, you know, if just to paraphrase, you know, longer term, we're still looking at maybe 5 to 10% of total U.S. production coming from RNG. So if I got that wrong, RNG, I apologize. I think I'm pretty close there, though. But that's the type of numbers we're talking about. So it will help, but it's not going to become the majority. RSG will, but RNG will not. Tell the folks at home if they're not uh, if they're not adopting or and or subscribing to the National Gas Intelligence, shame on them. If they're not listening to the Hub and Flow podcast after listening to the Green Insider, shame on them. Where can we find that great information? Please go to thanks for asking. Please go to www.naturalgasintel.com. Uh, lots of different subparts of our website, but there's places you can click to get free trials, and they truly are free trials. Or you can just email me at prices at naturalgasintel.com, and I can forge your request to the appropriate party. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Patrick Rao. You can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and on the website, of course, eRenewable.com. Make sure you check out all those locations this June. Again, Mike alluded to taking a little bit of a break. Also, too, this will be my last Green Insider podcast, so I want to send a huge thank you to Mr. Mike Niemer for bringing me on board and making me part of the team, and, of course, to the entire eRenewable group, and Roger, Al, as well as Miss Ashley. Thank you guys so much for everything that you do. Without you doing what you do, we couldn't do what we do. This has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. I just want to be